record. Here we go. We made it. Uh, we made it. So uh, we're looking in the book of 1 Samuel today, the book of 1 Samuel. This is, um, you know, each, each week, so there's, there's maybe a problem coming for you guys because each week there's an added page in my notes. <laughs> so um, this week, last week I had four pages. I usually just had three. This week I have five pages. So um, we will see how this uh, transpires this morning. But the book of 1 Samuel is a great picture. It's another one of those books in the Bible that's a transition book, meaning it has um, this uh, timeline transition, much like the book of Joshua, if you remember in the Old Testament earlier, uh, much like the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's a transition from what's come before to what's next. It's a link that will help us to understand the full Scripture even more than we do now. And so this book, the book of 1 Samuel, is that chain link that hooks together the time of the judges and the time of the prophets. And what we'll see is this person of Samuel has a unique story, very uh, kind of a new thing. It's a, difference, it's a different thing than we've seen thus far in the Scripture. And God is showing us and explaining to us uh, how he is constantly doing a new thing. As I have said before, as I've said my, my, most of my ministry, God is never changing, but we can find Him brand new every day because He's too creative to do the same thing twice. He's going to do something new. What He did in the first century church is not what He's doing today. He's still working, and He's still saving souls. He's still changing lives, but it looks very different. And he's doing a new thing. Even in the books that we'll see in the coming months and the coming weeks uh, through this study, we'll see there's times where God says, just come to me, even though the battle may look the same, come to me because I will deliver you in a different way. Because I, I want you to know that I'm still at work. I still am a fresh moving God. So don't just expect the last thing you remember to be the next thing that'll happen. He says, let me, let me show you something brand new. This is one of the things I love the most about God because I get, I get kind of in a rut sometimes, you know, and I get, I'm, I'm like, okay, here's, as long as I study this way, in this, in this Bible study, for this Wednesday morning study, let me just say a couple of things. Thank you, and I'm a little bit mad at you, okay, because I, I, I walk through a study time. I have a very clear study and prep time. In fact, for my Sunday morning messages or my, uh, the times I preach, and then this Bible study, they're different templates, but I have the same kind of template I work with. Well, through this Bible study, the Lord has been um, opening my eyes and opening my heart um, to kind of see things a little, bit, uh, a little bit differently. So each time I study, it's a little bit different. And I, I don't like that because it's, it's more work. <laughs> it's like, well, Lord, but as long as I just look at these chapter titles, as long as I look at these, know the stories, jot the stories out, this is how I'm supposed to study these. And God's like, oh, no, I got something different. So today is a different day. Uh, usually we would look at things as a timeline. Today we're going to look at things as uh, in four sections in this book, and it's going to be based on the four people that are primary. And here's the problem with this. In my brain, it doesn't exactly line up the right way, okay? So it's, there's a lot of overlays between these, these characters. But as I was kind of going through this particular study for today, God was kind of showing me something a little bit different whenever I took this 
little bit further out view, right? And I looked at the whole story. And I said, okay, God, what are you trying to teach us with the whole story? So how can we, and how can I best explain it? How can I best learn it? And then how can I best explain it so that we all are closer to you by the time this is all over with? Um, in the book of Judges, and you know, the book of Ruth that we talked about last week was kind of overlaid a little bit in the book of Judges, right? That timeline. And so we see the time of the Judges lasted 400 years. That's a long time. That's a long time. That's longer than this country has been uh, founded here in America. This is a long time for the times of the Judges. So we've had these 400 years of the way God did things, right? Israel would uh, sin, and then they, they would rebel against God. They would repent, and then they would ask for God to restore them. He would send a judge, and then they would be restored. Then they'd find peace. And then Israel would do evil again, and they would do that same pattern, happen 400 years of this pattern. And now God shows up in this fresh way and says, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to do something new, and I want you to see something new. Samuel, specifically, is a new kind of leader. Most of the time, God would just raise up a judge, right? So you had the, the, the priests that were put in place. Then, after the priests uh, had some problems, you found the judges. And then, then in the judges, that's how they, Israel was led. Now, a couple of things about the history and about God's purposes. So when, when God originally had uh, founded the nation of Israel, He had a purpose for the nation of Israel. He wanted Israel to be the bright, shining light to all of the world to reveal who God is, who their, their Heavenly Father is. That's what His purpose was. So God said, I'm going to make a nation. This is back in the book of Genesis, right? He said, I'm going to make a nation, and I'm going to, I'm going to make sure this nation is affecting every other nation. Not that this nation is affected by all the other nations, right? You see the difference there. He says, I want Israel to be the shining light to put on display who I am. And he wanted to do that through government. Now, I'm not saying he wanted to do that through political ways, but what God was doing is he said, I want Israel to be a theocracy. A theocracy is governed and led by God. That's it. That's how it is led. Ordered governed, led, ruled by God. That's what a theocracy is. So he, now, now there was a plan, if you look all the way back in Genesis, for Israel to eventually have a king. But God had the king in mind that he wanted. What we find in the book of Samuel is uh, God's people were a little bit impatient and they didn't want to listen and wait on God's plan. They tried to get something a little bit speedily. And so we see a couple of things happen in the book of Samuel. The four main characters in Samuel, you've got Samuel, right? You've got Eli. Eli is a priest. Um, and then you've got Saul, King Saul. And then you've got King David. So there's four major characters in the Bible. And we're going to get through this in about 45 minutes today. We'll see. Um, so you've got these, these four main characters in the Scripture. Um, and we see that, that first what first happens, so you've got Eli in the beginning... You got Samuel, who then crown, he crowns the kings, right? He crowns Saul, who that was the people's king. That was the one people were like, we want a king, right? And they were like, who do you want? Well, we want the big, giant, handsome guy. That's what they said. And Saul was that guy. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. This guy was super tall, good looking, powerful, 
people wanted to follow him. The people said, that's who we want. And Saul then, so he crowned him as king. And then God said, okay, now you get to crown my man that I want as king, King David, which then we know a lot of the scripture from here will be built around King. You'll hear a lot about King David from here on out. So as we look through this, Samuel, like I said, he was a new kind of leader. He was different than just the priests or the judges before. Um, Samuel, he was not a political judge. He wasn't even a priestly judge, in strictly speaking. He was a prophet judge, which was the first time we've seen this. Now, I'm not saying that Old Testament, the, the first patriarchs didn't have prophetic abilities and prophetic vision, but I'm saying this is the first prophet judge. So Samuel is the link between the the, the judges and the prophets, the, the priests and the prophets. He's the guy that puts it all together. Um, now, again, we know that in, uh, in the book of Genesis, specifically chapter 49, God, uh, through Jacob, had prophesied there will be a king in Israel. Israel will have a king. Uh, and we know in the Mosaic law, there's like rules on who can be king and who can't. So God's plan was to have a king, but the, his people jumped the gun a little bit and got ahead. So these, uh, these four men that I want to talk about in this scripture, as I looked over it again and read it again and, and read some commentary and read some notes and read some uh, uh, cross-referencing and all, all those pieces, I see these four guys. Eli, who was the priest. I see Samuel, who was the prophet. I see Saul, who was the king. And then I see David, who in this, in this story sense was kind of the prince, right? He wasn't the king yet um, and, uh, until the end of this book. But as I look at these, there's a few things that stuck, stuck, out, stuck out in my mind whenever I went through it this time. What I realized was each of these men had some failure. And, and it, it actually affected the job line. So... For instance, Eli had a major failure with the priesthood. So the priest failed miserably. I saw in Samuel, Samuel was a great guy. I mean, great guy. But he had a failure in his sons and not carrying on the, the prophet line as well as he probably should have. So Samuel had a couple of failures. We'll look at those in a minute. We know Saul. Saul had a pretty big failure a couple of times. His life ended with some massive issues. Which is, so you've got the problems with the priest, the problems with the prophet, and then the problems with the king. And then here's what I realized. After I read through this whole book, I thought, there's a lot of failures in these three specific um, callings. And then I looked to the New Testament. Do you know who is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king? Oh, it's Jesus. And he redeemed it all. He was the one who led those perfectly. He never failed. So the book of 1 Samuel ends with David and it points us to Jesus and says, listen, there's failure in the priesthood here in mankind. There's failure with the prophets here with mankind. There's failure in the kings here in, in mankind. But there is one coming that is not going to fail in any of those places. And he's good. And you're going you're to look to him and you're going to see he's the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. He has no failure in him at all. I love how it's pointing us that direction. It's a, it's a wonderful, beautiful part. So we're going to look at this book in the four parts of the four people. So we're going to look at it in Eli first, who is the priest who shows up. We're going to look at it with uh, Samuel, the prophet, 
Saul the king, and then we're going to look at David. So the first seven chapters, here's what we will see in the book of 1 Samuel. There is a, um, and here, here's the hard part about doing it this way. So again, it doesn't line up in my brain exactly. All these storylines kind of overlay one another, right? So it actually starts out with the, with the birth of Samuel. But we're going to talk about Eli because Eli was already there. So he was an adult male priest by the time Samuel was born. So I want to start talking about Eli first um, because Eli gives me a little bit more of a understanding of the spiritual times of the place that Samuel was born into. Um, Eli had a few failures. I found three specific failures that Eli had in his, in his life as a priest. Um, the first one... If, uh, if you see, and, I, and I'm, uh, there's some scripture here, and some of the scripture I'm going to bounce back and forth because of the way that, like, again, the more I, more I zoomed out and looked at the whole thing, um, there's, there's pieces that are later, but the timeline was actually earlier. So I, I want to try my best to help us to see this. Um, but in, uh, even in, in chapter 1, verse number 9, the second part of that, it says, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. So this is actually a story. In this moment, it's talking about Hannah, who is Samuel's mom. We'll talk about her in a minute. But Eli is found here as the priest being lazy. So here Eli was this great called man of God, should have been the one who took care of all the sacrifices, all, took care of all the, the um, activities and operations of the great place of worship and the place of prayer. And, the place, and here he is, it says he is just seated. He is just sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. He is, it shows that he has no energy. Uh, this is what I would call Eli, I believe, uh, is, is the first, what I would call, career priest. Now, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not, what I mean by that is, there are some people that will work and work and work. They, they will plow the fields, and they will plow the field, and they will plow the field, until God calls them to do something, and they, they already know the work ethic that it takes, right? Plowing a field is more physical labor, more work-intensive than taking care of a sacrifice in the temple. That's kind of routine. And so uh, Eli has lost touch with what true work ethic really is. He's just lost touch with it. He doesn't understand it. He has found just, uh, what, what do they say? What's the old phrase? Resting on his laurels. Can I say that? Is that something that makes sense? I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm using it wrong. I'm not quite, I don't, I've heard that before. But it seems like it fits. He's a guy who is just lazy. He has no energy, no vitality. There's no spiritual vitality to his work. We find him in multiple areas just sitting and taking it easy. And I'm telling you, the nation was in a wreck. Because here's, here's, here's the problem with that. Yes, it's a lot of work. I, I looked, I know Pastor Gary is preaching this Sunday, and his message title is one of incredible encouragement and a lot of sarcasm. And here's why. I, it's, it's like, is it worth all the trouble? That's the question that he's asking. Like, it's a lot of work. Like, it's a lot of work. Ministry's a lot of work. It's because God's calling is a big deal. And he didn't call us because everything's fine in the world. He called us because there's a lot of brokenness. He called Eli to be a great priest in this season, in this time, because the nation of Israel was in hot turmoil. It was a mess. 
If you don't remember, go back to the book of Judges, see how it ends. I mean, it ends with like serious uh, false doctrine and false teaching and, and a, lot of, a lot of giving in to foreign gods. And Eli is just found sitting around at the temple, not doing anything. He was lazy, he had no energy. We see a couple of verses later, verses 13 and 14, he has no vision, no spiritual vision at all. Hannah, this wonderful godly woman, was there praying to God. Now, if you are where you are, and Hannah was back here, and so he, he looks and he sees Hannah, and she's just kind of walking around and she's praying, but she's not praying out loud because she's not praying to Eli. She's talking to her father in heaven which is a wild, wild, amazing thing that happens in this spiritually dark time. Hannah is praying, and she's praying, and she looks like this. You can't hear her voice, but you can see her doing this. Eli is so spiritually unaware, so spiritually unaware, that he thinks she's drunk. That's what he thinks. He looks at her, and he thinks, oh, well, she's drunk. That's what's happening. Again, verse number 13 and 14, it says, uh, He, therefore, Eli, took her to be a drunken woman because her lips were moving, but he heard not her voice. And Eli said to her, How long will you, be, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. And she said, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm praying. What in the world, if a pastor, if a priest cannot tell the difference between, between a drunk person and a spiritually praying person. How troubled is the nation? This is where we find this ultimate, just terrible, awful, terrible thing. In chapter 3, what you'll see, it talks about Eli. Again, uh, in chapter 3, in fact, I want to read these uh, two verses to you, verses 1 and 2 um, in uh, chapter 3. Whenever the Lord calls Samuel, again, we're not talking about Samuel, but with Eli, it says uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days, for there was no frequent vision. And then verse 2, And that, at that time Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was laying down in his own place. Here's Eli, this priest, who, and again, the words right before him, there's no frequent vision from the Lord. Eli was going blind, physically and spiritually. He couldn't see what was going on. He couldn't experience what was going on. He could not lead the people because he would see somebody praying and think, oh, they must be drunk. There is a serious darkness that's here. And then what we see that happens next in chapter 2 of the book of 1 Samuel, we'll see Eli's story with his kids. Let me tell you, Eli didn't just fail as a priest. Eli failed as a parent, like bad, real bad. In fact, it says that his sons were so evil and wicked. And I believe if you read in chapter 2, verses 27 through 36, that chunk, what you'll see is that Eli's household had no values at all. He did not instill any values in his home to his sons. And we will see a massive problem that happens. So this priest had no energy for the Lord. He had no vision for what was supposed to happen. And he had no values set up in his home. 
Now again, I just wrapped up a home team series where I talked a lot about values in a home, a lot about how a man should lead his home and about how we as adults and parents should lead our children into understanding things. Last night in my home, we had uh, a, a kind of some chaos, a little bit break out with um, just some, some situational problems, right? It's the end of the school year. There's stress. There's some stress. I'm not going to be one that says there's no stress in my home. There was stress in my home last night. And as I was working through that with my daughters, uh, it was very much of, uh, in a calm voice, hey, let's see, is this going to matter in five years? What does that mean? Is, this gonna, is your stress right now, what you're worried about... Is it going to matter in five years? Well, yeah. I won't. What if I don't get into the college I want? Okay. Let me just be honest with you. If you do bad on this quiz tomorrow, your college, your the UT is not going to stop looking at you. Okay? It's just not going to happen. Like, you're going to end up with an A in the class anyway. Chill out. But what happens is we, we get to a place where we don't use the right values. Because last night, I, I, taught my, I taught my daughters the value of the big picture and the value of, listen, you've done what you can do. You do the best you can with what you have. And then you just, you allow the Lord to do whatever he's going to do. There's no need to worry. 300 and what, 60 something, tons and tons of times in scripture, it says, do not worry. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. Don't find anxiety ripping you apart. See, now that was time spent. There was a, it was a hour and a half counseling session in my house last night. And I'll be honest, I had to work a full day yesterday. I was tired. I wanted to sit down and watch a basketball game on TV. That's what I wanted to do. My basketball game was ruined. It was ruined because I have teenagers. That's what happened last night. And as I was there talking and teaching and training, I, I was tired. I didn't want to. I thought, you know what, forget this. I almost said, you know what, just go to bed early. You need extra sleep. Now, they probably do need extra sleep. But I know that, and, and, and a part of it, this is fresh on my mind, the, the home series and all that, but I know that if I don't instill the right values, what will happen is they will believe whatever they hear somewhere else, you've got to stress out, otherwise you're not going to be a, a good enough student. And I'm like, oh no, you're a good enough student because you're loved by your Father, you are loved by your Heavenly Father, you are cared for, you're brilliant, you put in the work, you're good. Don't, don't let somebody else tell you you're not in this scenario. I had to instill the right values. Eli did not with his sons. I don't think Eli spent the time he needed with his sons. He had some major, major problems. Even in chapter 2, we'll see in verse 29, God tells Eli, he says, listen, you honored your sons higher than me. I'm going to make a statement that is not going to be a, a, a culturally friendly statement. You honored your sons more than me. You spent more time on his batting average than you did on his biblical understanding. You spent more time on his GPA than on his heart and connecting him to the heart of God. You spent more time on your son's... Listen, and, and I, I played all the sports growing up. I did. And, and I'm not even saying church attendance is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about instilling the values of a godly home into your family. That's what God tells Eli. Listen, you, you made your sons more important in your eyes than you made me. That's what you did. You, you taught your sons that their worldly life mattered 
more than their godly life. And so we see this awful thing that happens. Uh, in chapter 2, you see a lot of, of who their sons were. Um, it says that their sons didn't know the Lord. They were worthless. Is what the Bible says. How terrible is that? Man. Uh, it says that they were vile. They were wicked, doing evil among the people. They were going around and, and treating the women like not the way they should be treated, right? It was ugly and awful. It says they were unwilling to repent. All this is in chapter 2, just from verses 12 through 34, you will see, and it says they were cursed because they were unwilling to repent. In fact, God says both of your sons are going to die on the same day because they are vile, they are evil, and the priesthood has been stained because they are of the world, not of God. And then we see in chapter 4, both of his sons, guess what? Died on the same day in the same battle. That's what happened because God doesn't miss he does not show up wrong. This is a terrible failure as Eli, as the parent. And so we see Eli, this priest, which by the way, growing up, you know, my dad was a pastor for my whole life, and he would refer to this, this, these, this text a lot whenever we were growing up, especially when we were teenagers. He would say, son, don't turn out like Hophni and Phinehas. And I would be like, what are you talking about? He's like, they died on the same day. He'd tell me and my brother that. Every, I mean, regularly. He's like, listen, you do worldly things. Both you, go, both you boys are going to die on the same day. And then that's going to be a bad situation for everybody in the community. And I'm like, okay, Dad, I, I get it, whatever. He used to, I'm telling you, he used to wear us out because we need to understand. And, and the whole purpose of it was to understand the seriousness of this calling. Like Eli's calling is crazy serious. The priest is crazy, crazy serious. So we go from the priest, that first piece, to Samuel, who is the prophet. So we're going to next, the next step in this survey is Samuel. Samuel, this great prophet of God, um, bridged the gap, the gap between the priests and the kings. Right? He founded the prophetic order of the people of Israel. Uh, he was the so it says that Samuel judged Israel. He was the last of the judges but the first of the prophets. So he is the transitional piece through this whole story. He's the, he's the person that we, we owe a lot of our understanding to how Israel got from point A to point B, right? We can see if his story was removed from the Bible, I always ask the question when I'm reading Scripture in a deep study time, why is this in here, right? Does it, does it uh, if it was taken out, what would I be missing? And then you begin to understand the importance. Samuel is a crazy important character and person in the story of God's redemptive process through man, to mankind because he is the bridge between judging and prophetic vision. Like he's, he's that vision. I'm thankful for Samuel. I'm thankful for his story in the scripture. I'm thankful for this book in the scripture. Um, he, and, and by the way, prophets, just so you understand a little bit about them from the Old Testament, prophets were kind of the highest ranking of all. So they would go and, and, and they would go and, and perform a sacrifice like a priest should, but the prophet can do it over a priest. Uh, a prophet could go and counter a big decree or uh, uh, um, some type of, of decision from a king. A prophet could come in and do that. Like a prophet had some authority. He had some God-given authority, some edict of the king and Samuel could walk in and say, yeah, we're not doing it that way. And like, they wouldn't. Like, that's how important and valuable a prophet is. As we look at Samson or uh, at Samuel's life, what we see 
First is his mom. We see his mother, Hannah. I mentioned a little bit about her a minute ago. Hannah, godly woman, prayed, begged God. You see in Hannah this desperation. She was barren, right? She couldn't have children. And so she was begging God in this desperate cry. And she promised God. She was one of those that made that promise to God. You, you've, you've, we've all been in the situation, right? We've all been super sick. And we've, we've said things from a hospital bed or whatever to God that a promise we just weren't, we really weren't going to keep, right? Lord, if you can just heal my body, I will give everything for the rest of my life to you because I'm miserable right now. And God's like, I know you're not going to give much and what you have isn't much anyway. So I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Hannah was this woman. She was barren. She was fruitless. She begged God, God, please give me a son. If I, if you give me a son, I will turn right around and give him back to you. Now, here's something amazing that I had not seen until I did this background survey here. Hannah, she has Samuel. She nurses him, whatever, and she, she turns around and says, okay, how do I give him back to the Lord? So she looks to the priest, the one who accused her of being drunk. I want you to think about that for just a minute. The faith of Hannah knowing that Eli was so blind spiritually, she's not trusting Eli. See, I thought when I first was reading this, I thought, oh, well, she just trusts the priest because the priest is important until I started reading and thinking, that priest accused her of being drunk in public, <laughs> accused her of being, and, and like, you speak to a woman like that, it's a problem. It is a problem. And instead, and Hannah says, I don't know the best way to do this, but I'm going to go to the person that's called to be the man of God, and I'm going to trust that my son will be raised in a godly manner. Now, if I'm looking at this just from the distance, Samuel's probably better off in her home, right? This guy's wicked. He's evil. His sons are evil. I mean, evil, taking women and just trashing them and using them, abusing them. And of course they would. Listen to how Eli spoke to Hannah, a godly woman calling her out for being drunk and she wasn't even she was like I don't even, I'm praying man what are you talking about she takes Samuel and hands him over to Eli and says I have this is the son that I prayed for God answered I don't know of a better way to give him back to God than by putting him in your home like what that is a crazy amount of faith I look at it I think I don't understand how this works we see then Samuel's ministry. After we see his mom and just that faithful story, you could preach in just days on Hannah. I mean, that is a faith that is unlike what we see today. I mean, there is no, there's no evidence that this is going to work out. In fact, all of, the, all of the scientific data says, you give this son to Eli, he's going to grow up like Eli's sons. Think about that. Eli's sons, wicked, vile, evil, that's what Eli has produced. But Hannah says, I believe that God can work even, even, even through you and around you and not even, not even mess with you because <laughs> you've obviously done a, a crummy job with your kids, but I believe God can raise my kid through you. So we see Samuel turned over into the ministry of Eli. Then what we see that takes place in just early on in Samuel's ministry, he's a kid 
in the, in the, the, the priesthood in, in Eli's home. And as a kid, if we look at chapters 3 and moving, moving into chapter 4, what we find, Samuel says, he gets a word from the Lord and doesn't recognize it. He's a kid, right? He's young. He hears the, the Lord says, Samuel, here I am. So Samuel gets up out of bed. This is, this is crazy. He goes and finds Eli and says, did you call for me? And Eli said, no, go back to bed. So he went back to bed. And he hear, the Lord says again, Samuel, here I am. Samuel gets up, goes back to Eli. Hey, did you call for me? <laughs> no, what's going on? Are you having bad dreams? Go back to bed. He's like, I, I keep hearing my, my voice. I keep hearing this. So Samuel is learning even as a child. And then, so Eli says, okay, if you keep hearing a voice, it may be the Lord. Remember, Eli hasn't heard much from the Lord. Think about this. Eli, through, again, this is a moment of God working through Eli. Eli doesn't even know what God's voice is anymore. He's not hearing from God. There, it's rare the vision that comes from God in this people, in this place. So Samuel, he tells Samuel, he says, listen, if you hear something again, just say, okay, go ahead and speak to me, Lord, I'm here. So Samuel goes back to bed. He hears the voice of the Lord. Samuel says, Lord, if that's you, I, I'll, I'll listen to whatever you say. And then God gives a curse to Eli and says, go tell your boss, your, your adopted dad, go tell him I'm cursing him. Uh, are you sure that that's what I'm supposed to do? And so he's faithful. He goes and tells Eli. Eli's like, what did he tell you? And he, Samuel's like, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to say. Like, he's like, I don't, uh, it's, this one's a tough one. Maybe I heard it wrong, right? I've never done this before. Maybe I heard it wrong. Eli says, tell me, what did he say? And he's like, well, here's what the Lord said. And Eli was like, well, figure this day was coming. I knew that we were headed in a direction that wasn't good. Then we see, uh, so that's how Samuel's ministry even begins. Like, how innocent and beautiful. It, it almost, you can see Hannah's heart in him, right? You can see Hannah's heart of this faithful person just trusting in the Lord. And Samuel, this young guy who's like, I'm just going to believe exactly what the Lord says, and we're going to see what happens. And then as you look, continue on through uh, chapters 4 and 5 of the book of First Samuel, I love 4 and 5 because... Um, there's a uh, uh, kind of an overlap between Samuel and Eli. So again, Eli and Samuel overlap. Uh, Samuel overlaps with Saul and with David. And you get all these, these storylines. But in chapters 4 and 5, you start to see some action. You start to see some battles. So you see the oppressors of Israel again. You know, up till now, all you saw was the inner workings of what's happened within God's people. Well, there's still a world going on around them, right? There's still problems. There's still situations. So the Philistines are coming in to attack. Oh no, the Philistines are attacking. This is a bad situation. This is a bad scene. They attack and they defeat Israel. Now God is even working in the situation and in the story, but the Philistines say, we're still going to attack. They capture the Ark of the Covenant, right? This is one of my favorites. This is one of those you tell a youth ministry because what you see happen next, after the Philistines, they, they capture the Ark of the Covenant, they take it back home. They put it in one of the temples of one of their gods. Their god is Dagon, and his, uh, his, the, he's a statue. He's got this big statue. He's in this temple. They take the Ark of the Covenant, and they, they put it in, in their camp, and they wake up the next morning, and the god of the statue of Dagon is, is falling down face first. 
And they were like, well, that's weird. So they put, they put their God back up. I'm really glad I never have to put my God back up. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they go and they, they repair him. They, they fixate him back up. They were like, that is, that is strange. That's never happened before. It's like, well, you've never had God show up in your camp before either. So then what happens the next morning, they wake up and this God has fallen. His head's cut off and his hands are cut off and they're laying over the threshold of the temple. It's like, okay, this one seems a little bit weird. <laughs> this one, we have to not only put him back up, now we have to put him back together, right? If you ever have to put your God back together and then put him back up, you probably are serving a God that's not worth serving, okay? I'm just going to put that out there. So then what happens next is God's, God, and again, God's still working, even in the midst of all the pro- problems going on in the priesthood of his people, right? God's, God can't be thwarted just because his people are being unfaithful. He's not going to be. He's still going to win battles. He's still going to do what he does. And then we say, well, well you know, so he knocked over a God. Okay, that's great. He didn't just do that. He then inflicted the whole camp. This is where I think, God, we miss out a lot on God's creativity and his humor a little bit, right? So after, after the, the God, the, the, the statue God has fallen down, head cut off, all these problems, God says, okay, now I'm going to mess with the people. So he gives them all hemorrhoids. That's what he does. For real, for real. It said, the Bible uses the word tumors. Those were, that word tumors is found, it's, it's actually like ulcers and, and um, uh, problems in, in, a, in the cavity of your body that is not, not friendly to these things. Like, this is a, I, that is what God did. How creative is he? So much so, they were like, we're getting this thing out of our camp. <laughs> we don't want this in here anymore. Ever since we brought this holy God's presence into our existence, it has messed with us. You know something I've learned about God? Anytime you're in his presence, it'll mess with you. It'll mess. Anything that doesn't align with him is going to get hemorrhoids. Okay? It's going to have major problems. It's going to have major issues. Every God that you've constructed in your life is going to be bowed down before him, broken into pieces. That's what's going to happen whenever God shows up. All things that we have created for ourselves. All things that we have, and we, we then trust, okay, we just have to put our God back together. And then God says, I'm going to inflict you with something that you can't do construction anymore. That's, that's what happened. That's what God is doing in the people. And the whole time, you got Samuel over here who is like calling out this stuff. He's like, yeah, this is, uh, this is definitely what's going on. And chapter 7, you'll see after that scenario happens, after that scene, um, Samuel is seen as a uh, judge in the time of war right? The Philistines were, uh, were attacking them and, and, and fighting them. We see uh, Samuel, he judges Israel through wartime, through time they needed a fresh word from God, through all these different moments. And we see he's, uh, he's built altars. He's made peace between the enemies. My guess is if word gets out, hey, if you steal that thing from Israel, you're going to have problems in your camp. The other enemies are probably going to be like, yeah, we're going to leave that one alone, right? I don't, I don't want to be sick. I don't want to have all of our, everything we worked for destroyed. We'll leave that to them. Samuel has this time of peace within Israel uh, with the enemies. And then after chapter 7, I know we're not far enough in yet. This is going to speed up, I promise. We see um, the, next, the next character that comes in the scene. So you've had Eli, 
then you've had Samuel, and then you see this person of Saul. So in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, this is the kind of the cry of sadness in the Scripture, because Israel says, we want a king like everybody else. We want a king like everybody else. We keep getting picked on. We wouldn't be picked on if we had a big, strong king. Now, if, if, if you're Samuel in this moment, you know, I don't know why you wouldn't say, listen, guys, we haven't had a king, and our enemies are afraid of us. They don't want to come and mess with us. They are afraid, and it's like they're, they're getting defeated in crazy ways that, listen, a king, you realize a king could not inflict the same pain on an enemy that God just did. Like in the scripture, no king is going to be able to send a, a plague of, of hemorrhoids to a camp. Like it's not going to happen. Like that's, no king can do that. Yet God's people say, we're tired of just trusting in faith that God's going to take care of us. We want to see a person. And so Samuel says, okay, after Israel demands a king uh, in chapter 8, then we see chapter 9 that Saul then is chosen as the king. He's a strong, impressive man. People wanted to follow this kind of guy. Initially, in Saul's um, uh, uh, kingship, we see something kind of interesting that I, don't, that I think gets kind of glossed over. Early on, Saul is a pretty humble guy. He's, he's seemingly following what the Lord says. He's a guy who, he's, he's patient a little bit up front. He's got a little bit of kind of charisma. People like him, and he's, he's doing the right things, it looks like. And so he starts off kind of well, and then next thing you know, he, um, he changed to a little bit impatient. As soon as he got impatient, everything changed in Saul's life. He was supposed to wait on the man of God to show up. Samuel said, the Lord has said, don't do anything until I get there. Saul said, oh no, he looked around at his situations and his circumstances. And what happens in these next few stories is he, um, he takes a, a, a few moments and he says, this is, a, there's a problem here. Um, there's, a, there's an issue. All of my people are leaving and the enemy's coming. So he says, we're just going to go for it. So Saul steps into a role he wasn't called to step into because of his impatience. It wasn't even because he was trying to do the role. It was because he was impatient with the Lord. He said, I am unwilling to wait on the Lord. That's a very important thing as we see something else that will tie to this in just a minute. Because when Saul does that, it says he was, um, he was, he, he was making, and the best way I could describe this as a, in preacher terms, he was making uh, situational decisions, right? Which all good leaders should do, right? We, we look at that, we think, man, he realized, okay, my people are scattering, the enemy's coming, I gotta move now. I gotta make a decision to move. That's a good leadership move, unless God didn't say to do it, right? He was making situational decisions when he should have had spiritual discernment. That's the difference, right? All he was basing everything on was his situational decision-making. This is, here's the situation at hand, now i got to act. Do you realize where Saul was seated as king? Listen, this, is, this will blow your mind. Where Saul was seated as king, he was looking down at his situation, where he should have been looking up for direction. He was looking down, saying, here's what all is happening in front of me, and I need to wait for Samuel 
to come as he said he would, just like God said he has ordered. So where the palace is sitting, where the, where the king is, is, is perched, he is seeing all the situation. He is looking down instead of looking up. As we work through this, uh, God, God also told, told Saul, another big uh, failure of Saul's, God told Saul in chapter number 15, um, he says to uh, uh, destroy all of the Amalekites. And we, you can, as you read through it, God said, I want you to destroy all the Amalekites, all of them. All of them, all of them, all of them. Destroy them all. If you remember, if you were here during the study of the book of, um, let's see, which one was it? Uh, Joshua, right? God said, go in and destroy all of the Canaanites. Israel destroyed most of the Canaanites. And then, next thing you know, the book of Judges. Why did the book of Judges take place? Because they didn't obey in the book of Joshua. They left, they left the foreign gods there. They left the foreign enemy there. And that ended up creeping into their camp. Again, Israel's supposed to be the light to everybody else, the influence to the world. And if God says, destroy all of this group, then destroy all of this group. Because you're supposed to be an influence to the world. I don't want the world influencing you. So we saw that in the book of Joshua. We saw the consequences in the book of Judges. Then we see right here, he tells Saul, destroy all of the Amalekites. So what does Saul do? He goes and captures the king and leaves him alive. That's what he, that's what he does in chapter 15. You see, he, um, uh, in, in chapter 15, it explains that the Lord is rejecting him because of this disobedience. We see all throughout history, I'm seeing a pattern now, and I almost wonder if it's happening today. And here, here's the spiritual moment for this, for this moment. God says, get all of the unholy things out of your family, out of your home, out of your life. If they didn't, massive consequences and complaining. He, tells, he told the people in Joshua to do that. He tells Saul to do that. And whenever we don't, we, it always comes back to bite them. It always comes back to hurt them. I, I look at our culture today, and I think to the church, God is saying, get all of the unholy things out of your life. And we are doing the same thing the Israelites did that we make fun of. We're getting almost all the unholy things out. Almost all of the terrible things out. And then what happens? That one thing will creep back in. What happens to Saul? Listen to the way Saul ends his, Saul's life is over. The Lord stops speaking to him. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever felt like the Lord's not speaking to you? That's a, that's a lonely, hard place. Lonely, hard place. We see that Saul, um, whenever his, his, last, his last hours, his last days, his last weeks, he consulted a witch. He consulted somebody. He dabbled in the occult. In these foreign gods, do you know why? He didn't get it all out of his house. He didn't get it all out of the camp. He didn't get all the, the foreign, awful, terrible, unholy things out. And so now he's come to the end of his life. God's not speaking to him anymore. And he's, he's turning to somebody who will. Who will speak to you? I guarantee you, I know somebody that will always speak to you. The world will always speak to you. The occult, the the trash, the foreign gods are always going to have... If you give them your ear, they will fill it up. That's what happens at the end of Saul's life. Dies by suicide. So now we see after Eli the priest fails miserably, after Samuel the prophet 
has gone up and down and his, his generation that comes after him is going to have some failures within it. We see Saul with his just dismal effect of, of terrible leadership towards the end. Now we see David. David, this wonderful young man. Um, in the next chapters from chapter 16 to the end of the book, we see um, David in four different places. And these four places are magnificent. I didn't even realize all this until yesterday as I was going back over my notes and I added some things, and it was in this area. In these chapters, we see David in the country, in the camp, in the court, and in the cave. You like how that all those start with the letter C? That's, that's impressive, right? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't come up with all that. But I know that he's in these four places. Um, and in the four places, we see him doing four things. So we see him in the country as a shepherd, in the camp as a soldier, in the court as a singer, and in the cave in solitude. All those start with the letter S. That's is pretty clever, right? Pretty good. I, let me tell you, I've built like 18 sermons out of this book this, this week. It's been awesome. But we find David as a shepherd uh, in, the, in the camp, in the, in the uh, countryside, is where we find him. He is tending the sheep. What he's doing as a shepherd is exactly what God wanted him to do to lead his people. See, God wanted a shepherd king. He did not want a soldier king. He wanted a shepherd king. See, the people wanted a soldier king. That's why they called Saul. God wanted a shepherd king, one that would care for the people. Imagine a king that actually cares for the affairs of the people rather than a king that just tries to dominate things. We even hear in those, in those words, like we, we think about today's society. Man, how great would it be if our leader in whatever organization you're in showed genuine care, critical, loving care for you, the people. Like that's, that's the kind of king we want now. We're like, well, yeah, for sure. We don't want somebody just to go and dominate everywhere. We want somebody that, that thinks about us. Wow, that would be amazing. We see, uh, in, whenever you look at the two, the two in contrast, you see Saul. The first time we see Saul, by the way, in the book of First Samuel, first time we see him, do you know what he's doing? He's lost the mules of his dad and has no idea where, to, where they are. Doesn't know where to find him. In fact, he even says, listen, whenever my dad shows up, like he's, we see this great King Saul, the first time he's mentioned, he's lost the mules. Doesn't know where they are. The first time we see David, he's tending his father's sheep in the countryside. He knows where everyone I'm are. Man, that just gives me chills right there, just because I know where I'm going with this. Like some of y'all, some of y'all picking it up. You're like, oh, I see it, I see it. Or do you want a king that's lost the mules, or do you want a king that's out tending, knowing all the sheep, knowing them by name? Like this is beautiful. In the country, David was doing what he was supposed to do. He was caring for and protecting the sheep, because in the country, he learned character. I'd say a great quality of a king that God wants is that of great high character. Character is, takes a lot of work. I, I remember working on projects with my dad growing up, and he would be using a drill, you know, electric drill, and he'd hand me a, a, a screwdriver. And I'm like, what's the deal, Dad? And he said, you're building character. And I was like, I, don't, I think we're building a door frame. I don't know what you need me to be. Like, why are you using the electric drill? He's like, I already got character. And, you know, and so I remember, I, I mean, turned my forearms on fire, you know, as I'm in here doing this. And the whole time I was like, okay, whatever. You know, he, he's like, we're going to plant some flower beds. I'm like, awesome. He goes and rents this tiller, you know. Whoa. He hands me a, a hoe and a, and a rake. And I'm like, 
dad, again, can I use that? And he's like, no, you're building character. <laughs> like, okay. And character, it's hard work, right? I'll tell you this much. I learned what it meant when a rock is in, a, is in the ground when I'm trying to, to till it up with a, with a hand tool. He never even felt the rock. It, you know, and you hear a little clunk, but he just keeps going. I'm like, I know, I, because here's what happens. I begin to understand more when I'm doing it by hand, right? That builds character. David learned character whenever he was in the countryside with his sheep. Then we see him in the camp. The camp, if you know, there's a, there's a story in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever heard it. Um, there's this, uh, this giant named Goliath, right? And he's a Philistine. Saul was the king. I told you, all these stories are overlapping, right? It's hard to see the timelines, but it's, it's all fitting together. These are the stories of the people. So we see the king. Uh, Saul is seeing this, this big giant Goliath, they're, 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 and Israel is at their camp. David just shows up to care for his brothers. Think about that. He, that's because he had built the character in the countryside, right? So his family says, hey, go take this to your brothers. And he says, absolutely, I'd love to care for my brothers. I'd love to go and fuel them, fill them up, do whatever they can. That's a shepherd's mindset. A shepherd thinks, how can I make sure that the sheep are healthy? David's thinking, how can I make sure my brothers are healthy? Because they're at war. And I want to make sure that they are the healthiest, strongest they can be. If I am the conduit to help them get strong, I want to be the conduit to help them get strong. That's a, that's a picture I'd never seen before. I always picture David as this little young kid going up to see a big fight, and he's like, yeah, let's go, let's make this happen. Until I began to realize God was developing his character. And as a shepherd, he wants to see sheep healthy. The healthier the sheep are, the better and more uh, adequate they are to do the things they need to do. So we see him going to the camp. Now what happens in the camp is uh, he, he showed up, he made some noise. See, God taught him in the camp, he taught him character, he taught him courage. That's what he taught David in the camp. He says, you not only, I don't only just want a king that is high in character, I want a king that is high courageously in front of people. Now already he had fought, not, he had fought off the, lion, the, the bears and all of the, the wild cats and the, the wolves and all the things that come up against the sheep. He had fought them off. He already had some courage, but never in front of people. You see the difference there? Cur because as a, as a shepherd, you're fighting off the, the enemies because you're trying to protect the sheep. Whenever you are standing in front of people and God says, there is an enemy out here and I'm going to ask you to step forward. Youngest guy in the camp. I want you to step forward. Least abled body guy at the camp. I want you to step forward. Taught him courage in that campsite. Then we see him in the court. The court is uh, after the scene at, at David and Goliath. Um, the, uh, I, I would love to tell that story, but I'm going to trust that you know the story. And we're moving on. We're almost done. Um, so in the, uh, in, the, in the court, this is when Saul wanted David to come and play for him. Right? So he was, he was asked to come and play his instrument. So David, this shepherd boy who was courageous in battle, is now coming to lead worship. And he is coming just to sing. And here's what happened. The people in Saul's court were like, Saul gets a bit aggressive. He gets a bit heated. He gets kind of out of his mind. Maybe some nice soft music as he's going to bed will help him chill out. So they bring David in to literally chill the king out. So they bring him in here to do this. While he was in the court, he learned conduct. So we see him learning character in the fields. We see him learning uh, uh, courage in the camp. And then we see him learning the conduct of the way a king should act. 
You bring a boy out from the fields into the, into the, th- uh, the palace, he's not going to know how to act. So David, as a young boy, was in the, in the courts learning how he's supposed to conduct himself around royalty, around, around those of influence and those of power. He learned how to conduct his life and how to conduct his speech. You can imagine, as a shepherd, he's just yelling out at the sheep, right? He's calling out the sheep, he's doing whatever. You know, hey, he's talking to himself. Now we see him in the, in the court where he's got to be able to... His speech needs to be improved. His, his character, his quality of his words and his communication needs to be improved. He learns that in the court. And then we see uh, it doesn't take too long. Saul uh, gets jealous and, and gets intimidated and threatened by David. Well, everybody likes this guy. I don't like him. So we see him running out. So Saul's men, his, uh, his, his crew of his mob, chase out David. So now um, David is a fugitive, and he runs out and hides. We find him in the cave. He's in solitude now. He's run away. He's run out because they are ready to kill him. In the cave, I believe that David, that's where he learned his convictions. Uh, because when you are in solitude... You learn what really, truly matters. I, I encourage everybody. I, I like to spend time with the Lord, and I like to do it in, in, a, in sometimes what I call deep sessions. Right? Those deep sessions are places and areas where I, I begin to analyze things. You never, you, I'll tell you where you analyze things. You analyze things in a cave. How did I get here? Don't people remember I killed that big giant? Don't people remember that I love the sheep? Don't people remember I'm a good singer? Don't people remember any of that? He's all by himself. So what matters truly to him? That's where he learned his convictions. Multiple times, and I, and I want to emphasize this, multiple times uh, we see that David had attempts, he had opportunity to kill Saul, right? David knew he was the guy. And he had opportunities to kill Saul. And he didn't. Do you know why? Because he said, I am not impatient. Remember, I was telling you about Saul. Saul's big, major, super bad first flaw was he was impatient. He was unwilling to wait on the Lord. David, multiple attempts to kill Saul and get rid of him. And he says, no, I'm willing to be patient. Why? Because he had high character. That's why, Because God trained him for that every season. So then we start to look in the book of 1 Samuel. If we take this big step back, yeah, there's story after story after story. There's Jonathan in here. I would love to spend a lot of time in Jonathan. I would love to spend a lot of time on any of these stories that are incredible. But what I've learned is this, as I took this step back and began to think about, God, what the, what's the picture you're showing me? And he says, every season in David's life was designed to train him up to be the king that God wanted him to be. So in Saul's tragedies, think about this. In Saul's tragedies, that was all moments of David's training grounds. Saul had impatience, and he was trying to hurry things and rush things. David was taking care of the sheep. In Saul's uh, anger and and in Saul's fear, Saul didn't want to go up against Goliath. In his fear, David was being trained in how to have courage. In Saul's anger and misunderstanding of of who God is and what he's doing, he's mad and angry at David, and he hates him, and so he's trying to run him out. And David's singing a song, just learning how how to be in the presence of royalty. 
And even in Saul's chase for him, Saul's going mad, going mad, running David out of town. And David's learning how to find deep convictions there. Every, every tragedy of Saul seemed to just be a training ground for David. As we close up this morning, I want to encourage you with, with this. Um, as I look through the Old Testament so far, what I'm seeing is when God says to do something, let's just do it, okay? And let's just do it exactly like He said. Because there's a lot, a lot, a lot of partial obedience in the time of Israel. A lot of partial obedience. They left things they weren't supposed to leave. They, they allowed things they weren't supposed to allow. They didn't follow after what God said when He said to do it. There's a lot of, I'll do most of it, but not all of it. I want to encourage you today, uh, if that's the pattern of your life, uh, I want to encourage you to change your pattern. Not for my sake, for your sake. Every time something was left undone, God punished for that. And I, I just look and see, and again, we see the, the picture of the, the priest and the prophet and the king and we see the failures of each of these three areas. And, and in Samuel's life, I didn't jump into it much, but you, you can read through uh, his story and, and the way that his kids didn't, didn't walk in the same ways of the Lord that Samuel was. was. Um, he was a little bit absent as a father, and because of that, kind of failed his next generation, his next line. There's failures in all these areas until Jesus. And there's no more failures in these areas. So today, we can take the hope. We can, we can add all of our joy and our hope and our, our trust into one person because he didn't fail in any of these professions or these areas. He is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for 1 Samuel, for this great transition book in your word. I pray that maybe we gained something, gleaned something from it this morning. Lord, I hope that uh, it made sense. Uh, it's, it's a little jumbled in my brain and I'm a little tired, but I, I hope and pray that I was removed out of the way so that your word could speak for itself. Um, Lord, I pray that as we continue through these book studies that we would experience you. God, my heart is that we would see you, God, and what you're doing and your ability to, to create plans in life that just make sense. They're awesome. Lord, thank you for that. I pray that you would give us a great week this week as we continue on. Give us a great day today. Allow us to walk out of here a little bit different, a little bit more understanding of who you are uh, so that our life can be more and more full. Thank you, Lord, for all you do. It's in Jesus' name we pray and him only, the one who is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thank you so much for